Well, Sunday greetings. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and let us be glad. We continue this morning in our Stories of Jesus series looking at one of the most pointed parables that Jesus ever told. It's sometimes generally known as the parable of the unforgiving servant. And it's only recorded in St. Matthew's Gospel. It's a tale, as you have just heard, which challenges and which confronts, but only in order to call us into a more excellent way of living, a more godlike way of doing relationships. As we prepare to dive in, let me pray. Loving and forgiving Father, help us now to understand in our minds what your scripture is saying to us, but open our hearts as well that we might desire to put it into practice and that we might know how to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So the story today is prompted by a question, and the question comes from verse Peter there in verse 21. Jesus has been talking about relational reconciliation. That's the purpose of most of chapter 18 up until this point. And Peter, reflecting on everything Jesus says, wants to know what the limits of forgiveness are. Are there limits? What are they? Now, according to most of the rabbis at this period, those were the Jewish religious teachers, the religious specialists, you should indeed forgive people who wrong or offend you, and you should, you should do it up to three times, but no more than three times. That was what the rabbis taught. Now, Peter, of course, getting to know Jesus now, and he knows that Jesus' standards tend to be a little bit higher than most people's standards, and so he imagines that when, with, with Jesus, you know, forgiveness is going to have to be extended a little bit more generously, maybe all the way up to seven times. That's what Peter says, but, but that's not what Jesus agrees to. He ups the ante. Verse 22. He looks at all his disciples and he says, actually, folks, when it comes to forgiving others, you need to be ready not to do it seven times, but 77 times. Now, in fact, the Greek there is a little bit ambiguous. It could be 77. It could be 70 times seven. But either way, the memo is the same. Jesus is not saying that on the 78th time or on the 491st time, that's when you can stop forgiving. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that when it comes to forgiveness, for those who are Christians, those who follow Jesus, we must be willing to forgive time after time after time, even when it is difficult, even when it's painful. And that declaration, that striking declaration, is underscored by the parable, the story Jesus goes on to tell. And as we explore this story, there are three things that I want you to take note of. Three things. First, forgiveness is not optional. According to Jesus, it's not optional. It's mandatory. Second, Jesus sheds light on what forgiveness entails, of what it consists of. And third, this story shows us how on earth some of that radical forgiveness that Jesus calls us to can become possible. Let's start with the mandate. Based on this story, for those who follow Jesus, forgiveness is not optional. In our text, we encounter a servant who gets forgiven, but then does not go on to forgive. And as a result, verse 34 and following, this guy is thrown into jail. He's turned over to be tortured, because that's what happened when you were thrown into jail in this time and in that place. Striking, unsettling. Jesus is making a point here. He's not beating around the bush. An unforgiving heart will lead you away from God and right on into eternal punishment. Verse 35. Now, I'm well aware that this sharp statement can be a bit unsettling. It was for me, it is for me. And it may also raise some theological questions. For instance, are we being told here that forgiveness, 
or the refusal to forgive, to be more precise, is the standard of being saved? Is forgiving others a work that you have to do in order to be saved by God? Is that what Jesus is teaching? It might seem so. And that's strange, even problematic, because doesn't the Bible, doesn't the New Testament elsewhere teach that salvation is by grace through faith alone? That's what Paul says in Romans 5. So what's going on here? Let me clarify. Look again at verse 27. The king absolved the servant of the debt. He negated the debt. That's a profound act of grace. It was completely unwarranted. And because of it, this servant is saved, at least for the time being. Yet according to this story, that sort of profound act of grace demands a response. And when there isn't a response, it means that that grace has not really, not really been received. It's not been appropriated into your heart. Let me put it like this. You can say that you've been saved by the grace of Almighty God, but if you do not subsequently extend that grace to other people, if you don't live in it and through it, if you don't open your heart to others the way that Christ has opened God's heart to you, then you're kidding yourself. That's the point. Because saving grace, true grace, changes hearts and lives. It transforms us, even though that can be slow sometimes or can feel slow. Which means, says Jesus, if you don't forgive, then you've not really received my grace. You've not really made me your God and your King and your Lord in your heart. And so despite initial impressions to the contrary, this parable is not negating salvation by grace through faith. To the contrary, it's teaching that when Christ's grace is really at work in me, I will be someone for whom forgiveness is not optional. Do you see? You may not see. So let me unpack this a little bit further. It's a subtle but really, really important distinction. Let me do an analogy. Imagine there are two trees. Two apple trees, side by side. One of the trees has tons of apples, the other one has no apples, and it looks like it's not going to have any apples for a while. Now, in that scenario, you would conclude that the tree without fruit has got some sort of disease. Maybe it's dying. But likewise, you would know that the tree that does have fruit, the healthy tree, that the fruit is not what's giving it life. The fruit is revealing and indicating that there is life in that healthy tree. And so, too, with forgiveness. The practice of forgiveness does not make us right with God. It doesn't save us in God's eyes. Rather, it reveals and indicates that Christ is really our Lord, that his grace is truly at work in us. Inversely, when we hold grudges, when we refuse to forgive, which can make us feel so self-righteously wronged and so self-pitying, that means that grace may not very well be at work in our hearts and lives. In fact, when that happens, we end up behaving more like Satan than Jesus which is why we might be on our way to eternal punishment. At least we've got all the signs of it. Verse 35. If we refuse to forgive, we can expect to be treated just like the unmerciful servant in this story. It's a solemn warning. We're talking about a life and death situation, which is why Jesus says forgiveness is not optional. Now, as this settles in, a bit heavy, but important, as it settles in, I want to make a pastoral comment. I'm well aware that sometimes relational estrangement can swell over things that are really petty. I've met people who haven't spoken in years because of one little thing. They won't let go, and it's ridiculous. We know this. Yet I'm also very conscious that there are many, maybe even some in this room right now, who have had very serious, very horrendous sins committed against us. 
Could have been sins committed against you when you were a kid. Maybe more recently, sins committed by people you didn't really know, or maybe some sins committed against you by people you did know, people that were supposed to love you. There's been trauma. And you continue to live with the consequences of that. Your life has never been the same. You know more than most how hard it can be to forgive. If that is your situation, there are two things I want you to hear. First, in his teaching about forgiveness, Jesus is in no way encouraging us to condone or minimize sin. Nor is he suggesting that it is easy to forgive. Forgiving took Jesus to the cross. Need I say more? In like manner, forgiving certain people in your life may be agonizing, it may be far from easy, and God knows this. Second, there is a difference between refusing to forgive and struggling or wrestling to forgive. The warning in this parable is for those who would set themselves against forgiveness, who would inveterately refuse to do it. And so Jesus' warning in no way is a condemnation of those of you who might right now be struggling really hard to forgive. If that's your story, and I've been, I was in that situation two years ago, what I would say to you is keep struggling. Keep striving. You're on the right path. All right, let's move on to the second point now because this story also sheds some really important light on what forgiveness entails, what it consists of. And let me just say, we're all going to need some skills in this area because we've all got grudges. Some of us are avoiding people right now. Some of us are simmering. Some of us have erupted. Some of us want to erupt maybe this afternoon. And if you can't relate, just wait. Just live long enough and you'll be able to relate at some point and you're going to need Jesus' advice when that happens. The advice that he gives in this parable encompasses three elements. They're all there in verse 27. Let me read that for you again. The servant's master took pity on him he canceled the debt, and he let him go. Let's explore these three elements of forgiving. First, taking pity. You've got to take pity on the person you need to forgive. Now, the Greek word there is significant. Pity has kind of a funny connotation for us. But the Greek word here refers to deep compassion for another, to seeing their neediness, their weakness, to letting your heart go out to them a little bit. What we're talking about in more modern terms is something like empathy. Empathy. And how does this pity, how does this empathetic compassion happen? Does it just spontaneously arise automatically in me? Well, sometimes maybe, but probably not if I'm face-to-face with a person that has wronged me, especially if it wronged me in a deep and serious way, which is why pity and taking pity is not a passive activity so much as an active one. It requires doing some internal work, the internal work of reminding myself how much I, in fact, have in common with the person who has wronged me. If you're like me, that does not always come naturally. In moments of anger, I prefer to accentuate the differences between myself and the vile person with whom I'm angry. Jesus says i got to do the opposite. Let me put it like this. We've got to stop caricaturing people, which is what we tend to do when we're bitter at them. We caricature certain of their negative features get exaggerated, and then their positive features, and there always are some, oh, we just overlook those. We make people one-dimensional, and we do that to stay angry at them. You know this. Imagine somebody lies to you. You're hurt, you're irate, and I come along, and if I were to ask you in that moment, hey, why did this person lie to you? Guess what you'd be tempted to say? Because she's just a liar. 
a no-good, low-down, dirty, rotten liar. That's all she is. But wait a minute. Do you ever tell a lie? Do I ever tell a lie? You better believe it. I love reading statistics about this. We lie all the time. <laughs> Yet if we ask ourselves why we lie, what do we say? It was complicated. That's why I lied. It was complicated. We don't give others this benefit. We just say, they're liars. But ourselves, us, we're complicated. It's very unusual circumstances. When we behave this way, when we fail to take pity, forgiveness withers. Let me put it like this. Forgiveness flounders because we exclude others from the community of humans and we exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. And so Jesus teaches that we've got to take pity and show compassion in order to forgive. Now I want to stress here again because there's a big risk of being misunderstood that taking pity, showing compassion should not be understood, at least in the first instance, as having a certain feeling, a certain emotion. This is not about acting in response to an emotion which may or may not arise in you. Look at verse 35, very end of the parable. Jesus says, we've got to forgive those who wrong us from the heart. Now when we read the word heart, we modern people, we tend to think of that as something emotional. The heart refers to emotions and feelings, but that's not what heart means in the Bible. In Scripture, heart goes right to the center of your personality. It pertains to your will, what drives your will, which means that when Jesus says we've got to forgive from the heart, he's in fact calling us to make a decision of the will, to make a choice to forgive, to say to ourselves, to determine, I will see this person in their complexity and in their weakness. I will not bear a, uh, a grudge. I'm determined to bury the hatchet, regardless of my feelings. And the feelings, they will come and go as they do. Which is why the ultimate question is this. When the bitter feelings rise up inside of me, when they come back, will I heed them? Will I indulge them? What will you do with those feelings? Will they run riot and govern your conduct? Will your heart be driven by those feelings or will it be driven by the will of God? That's the ultimate question. Second key ingredient to to forgiveness is canceling the debt. This is really at the core of forgiving and it's probably the most demanding part of doing forgiveness. Now we know from verse 24 through 26 that the debt that this king canceled was sizable. We're talking about a lot of money here. Uh, the servant in this story who stole the money or mishandled it, he was not a gardener, he was not a butler, he was more like a regional governor or a prefect or something like that. And so the loss to the king is very great so much so that there's no chance things can ever be put back the way they were before. It, it can't be undone. So if the king wants to move forward without spending the rest of his life bitter and bound up in rage and intent on forgiveness, there's only one thing he can do. He himself has to absorb the debt. He has to eat it. He's got to eat it, which means that he pays it. And that's how it goes with forgiveness. When we forgive, we absorb the debt. We agree to eat the consequences instead of trying to serve them back in some way to the person that wronged us. I've got a friend called Mike. Not Mike Knight, by the way. This friend is a big boy, over six feet and weighs several hundred pounds. Not Mike Knight. And on more than one occasion, my friend Mike, he's been hanging out at someone's house and he has crushed the seat on which he was sat. He's simply too big for some of these flimsy things that pass for chairs these days. And what happens in those situations? The host typically says, it's okay, Mike, don't worry about it. And implicit in that forgiving response is the host agreement to eat the cost. 
because the cost of the chair does not evaporate into thin air. A new chair's got to be procured, and the host is going to cover that cost. Someone must pay, the one who deprived, the one who broke, the one who was deprived, the one who was broken, the victim or the perpetrator. Someone must pay. To forgive is when you pay. To forgive is when you pay. When someone wrongs us, there's always a loss. Maybe it's a loss of opportunity, a loss of money, a reputation, a loss of relationship, a loss at a chance for self-development and education, a loss of your emotional and psychological well-being. You know this, and that list could go on and on and on. And in many cases, that loss, not all, but in many, that loss is irreplaceable. Things cannot be returned to exactly how they were before it happened. You can't un unscramble an egg. There's a real debt, and you feel it. The other person is liable to you. And in response, on the one hand, you can try to make them pay. You can hurt them. You can hurt them physically. You can hurt them with your words by gossiping or slandering about them. You can hurt them by not, hurt them by not using words, by being cold and callous. That's how we punish each other in my family system. You can seek some form of revenge or vengeance. And if they suffer enough, you feel like they've paid. But it comes at a price because you behave like Satan. You get filled up with animosity and resentment and bitterness. Jesus says we've got to refuse that, which entails canceling the debt, absorbing the cost of the offense against us. And yes, this hurts. When we refuse to retaliate, it is painful. When we refuse to afflict back, it is hard because everything in us in those moments longs to lash out, to seek vengeance, to try to find some sort of fleeting catharsis along the way. And it's painful because you're paying the debt, you're bearing the cost. Showing mercy ain't cheap. But it's part of forgiving. And in the end, we will be much, much, much better off for forgiving than for not forgiving. Verse 35. The final ingredient of forgiveness is seen in the king's letting the forgiven servant go, the very end of verse 27. In other words, the event that occasioned the need for forgiveness is now water under the bridge. Now, in concrete applicational terms, what does this mean? How does this cash out concretely? In at least three ways, I would suggest. First, it means that when I forgive someone, I will not bring up that matter to another person. I will not point out to another person what you did to me that created the need for forgiveness. Second, it means I will not bring up that matter to myself. I will not nurse the memory of my former grievance against you. And third, the next time you and I have a disagreement, if we do, I will not drag out this former offense and nail it back to your forehead. It's water under the bridge. It's forgotten. Now, at this point, let me dream for a moment. Gang, if we all did this, if we took these three ingredients put them into practice, how hugely transformative would it be for our families, our marriages, our small groups, our friendship circles, our churches? That is a beautiful prospect. I want to live in that place. Is anybody else? If I was a Baptist minister right now, I'd say, let me get an amen. <laughs> Speaking of the forgetting part of forgiving, let me offer a quick practical pastoral clarification. This is a question that's in some of your minds I know. The forgetting part of forgiving is about no longer remembering a particular offense or a sin that somebody has committed against you. It does not mean that we totally forget about the sinful inclinations or tendencies 
that may be part of the offender's experience or story, that are part of all of our stories in some way. So, for example, you have a friend uh, who steals from you, a friend who may struggle with kleptomania. When you forgive them for stealing from you, you don't forget that they have a struggle with kleptomania. And so if that friend gets nominated to serve as the treasurer of the organization, you act with wisdom. You take steps to steer them away from that form of service to ensure that they are not put in temptation's path. Forgiving does not negate the need to be wise and responsible and looking out for one another, for our families, for our churches. Do you have that? Time to move on. We're going to think now about how on earth we can begin to do this form of radical forgiveness that Jesus says we must. Some of you will know the name Louis Zamperini or Louis Zamperini. I don't know if he was of French ancestry or not. Anyway, he was an Olympian who went on to serve as a pilot in World War II. And during his service, the B-24 bomber that he was flying went down. And even though he survived that crash, he ended up in a Japanese POW camp. And that place was a hell on earth. There was a guard there called the Bird who beat Zamperini savagely and daily. But he survived, and he eventually made it back home. And when he returned home, after getting the hero's welcome, after that, the part of the story that people often forget and don't see, his life fell apart. To cope with the PTSD, he took to drinking, and he was filled with bitterness and rage. And then one day, he found himself at a Billy Graham crusade. And despite the fact that he walked out on the first night, the topic was forgiveness that night, he went back the next day. And he got saved. And part of that event, as he's written in his memoir, was coming to an awareness of his own profound need for forgiveness. And out of that, and in the subsequent years, Zamperini went back to Japan and he found some of those people who beat him in that prison and he forgave them. He even found the bird, but the bird refused to meet with him. But he forgave that man too. That's a picture of the type of forgiveness to which we are called by Jesus. It's a picture of what is possible for those who follow him. And if that level of forgiveness is possible, then surely we can handle all the smaller things too, and even some of the bigger ones. So how's that happen? As we said earlier, our will does have a role to play in forgiveness. We've got to decide to take pity. We have to strive to be empathetic to those who wrong us. But our wills, at least mine, and I know I'm not alone in this room, they can often resist this, which is why they have to be stirred. We have to be, we have to be moved. Our hearts have to be softened. They have to melt. And what makes a hard heart melt? Today the answer is, seeing where we are in this story of Jesus and seeing where he is. And where are we? Look at verse 24. As the king began to settle all the accounts, a guy was dragged in who owed him 10,000 talents. You could read that as 10,000 bags of gold, trillions of dollars, billions of bitcoins, whatever currency you want to use. Impossible to repay. That guy, that's me. That's you. And that king, that's God. You see, this parable is, in fact, a depiction of the world, of our world, of humankind, of us. It's a vivid reminder of the gut-wrenching truth that human beings have accumulated a mountain of moral debt before a good and loving and holy God. 
and we add to this all the time. Every time you're less than honest, every time we fudge an expense account, every time you're unloving to a four-year-old, every time I made a cutting remark that I shouldn't have, every time I should have spoken in love but didn't, every time we gossiped or were not grateful or closed our eyes to the poor, every selfish act, every self-righteous attitude, every failure to be generous with the finances God has blessed us with, every blind eye we've turned towards racism, every moment of spiritual sloth, all of that adds to that mountain of moral debt. We're all in the same boat, just like the servant in this story, every one of us, and there is no chance that we can ever repay that debt. And how does God respond? Does he grab me by the neck and choke me and say, pay me back, Roger, or I'll destroy you? No. That's not what he does at all. Some of you might think God is like that, but he's not like that, not at all. To the contrary, he takes pity on me, profound pity. He knows my weaknesses. He has compassion for you, untold compassion. Our God is breathtakingly merciful. Breathtakingly merciful. And he cancels that debt. That happened when Jesus Christ hung on a cross. It was in that agonizing moment that God absorbed our sin. It was in that moment that Jesus laid flat that mountain of moral debt and set us free. It is only in seeing this, and experiencing this, and recognizing that that's not just any old story, that's your story, that we have any chance of doing radical forgiveness. Based on what God has forgiven us, that's the only thing that makes sense. In fact, against the backdrop of what God has done for us, a refusal to forgive one another can only be called outrageous. Because when all is said and done, no matter what offense people have committed against me, it pales in comparison to the sin that Christ has dealt with on my behalf before God. We've got to get this. It has to melt our hearts. And I pray in the power of the Holy Spirit that that's happening in this room and in this community right now, wherever it needs to happen. And to the degree that that happens, you will find that that pity and compassion you thought it was impossible extend to that offender, that forgiveness that was totally out of the question, can in fact be back on the cards seven times, 77 times. It comes down to this, if I can steal some words from C.S. Lewis. To be a Christian means you forgive the inexcusable in others because God, through Jesus Christ and his boundless love, has forgiven the inexcusable in us. I speak to you in the name of the forgiving God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.